Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for another day. We thank you, God, for Sundays, and we thank you for this Sunday. We want, God, our lives to look to you and trust in your blood as we just sang. We want our lives to be for your glory. We come here, Father, that we might worship you and gather with other people who love you and want to worship you. And yet, God, we need to understand, we need to hear, we need to grow in the truth. We, we stay often confused and questioning and searching and we need to be pointed to the truth regularly. We need not neglect this that's happening here. So, Father, now we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Teach us today. We come, God, saying that we need you to teach us. And we believe that you will. We ask that your spirit would cause us to understand it, help us, help us to see it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, it's page 1114. If you want to use the black pew Bibles there, they're in front of you. I want to say thank you to all of you uh, for the prayers this week. We, we made it home safely and both mom and baby are doing pretty good recovering. Uh, thank you so much for the support, the encouragement. I've received uh, calls and texts from many of you and we appreciate that so very much. We are uh, so humbled um, and undeserving to, to welcome another one into our house. You cannot at all take children for granted. You can't at all take additions to the family for granted. And um, we, we just feel so undeserving and, and so blessed. Um, so thank you for the support in that. We do now have three boys and two little girls. Um, and and I'm, I'm just right now overwhelmed with, with just love and goodness uh, both from you all and from God that He has given me this life and this wife and these children and, and you all as my friends and family and this being our church. And maybe I'm just t emotional because I'm tired. That's probably what it is. But uh, also maybe not. I, I'm, I'm, I just feel very much so uh, that I have a life that I don't deserve. And I'm very humbled and, and thankful for that. So thank you all for the love and support that you give me and my family. Our, our, well, let me say this too. Uh, was, was yesterday just not the perfect day for Thunder over Louisville? It was outstanding. I don't know if you go or if you don't go, if you like it, if you don't like it. I know it's too many people to be in one little place, um, but it's just outstanding. We didn't go. We watched it on TV, but the, the weather combined with what Thunder over Louisville was yesterday was just outstanding. I, I was so thrilled to watch that and... Uh, I thought we couldn't go today without mentioning just how awesome it is. You know, I'm from North Carolina, grew, in, grew up, born and raised in Charlotte, North Carolina. I've been here now 12 years. And um, as I was sitting there thinking yesterday, I mean, this is like one of the biggest days in the city of Louisville. Everybody knows what Thunder is. Almost everybody's schedule is scheduled around Thunder over Louisville. Whether you go or not, you do know that it is Thunder. I mean, it's, it's a huge deal. 
Um, and yet people that live in other places don't, don't even know about it. I mean, they know about the Kentucky Derby, but they don't know about Thunder that is the kickoff to the Kentucky Derby Festival. And so I was thinking about that yesterday, like this awesome thing's going on, and here my parents are in North Carolina with no idea. And I was just thinking about that. It, it is very meaningful to us, and I hope you had a good day yesterday. I hope you're able to enjoy the weather and, and be out. And we look today to 1 Peter. We're moving right along. We're at chapter 3. And it picks up with marriage. Husbands and wives. And I don't know how you feel, but I think it's uh, very humorous in, in God's plan that on one of the most trying weeks for a home and for a marriage and for a family, God has me trying to preach to you all about what a husband should be like to his wife. So I want you to know that by no means am I an expert on marriage or on husbandry or on what a wife should be like. I am not the ultimate example to you all in life. I think you know that already. That's why you're kind to me. Um, but I want to remind you that. But what I really want to be to you all, I mean, what I really, really want to be to you all, to every one of you, those who are just here for maybe the first time or those who come regularly, I really want to be the guy that will not compromise and will tell you what God says. I want you to know and to feel what God says. And I want you to be able to say and feel and live your lives like, I want to live as a believer in Jesus according to what God says. And I feel it and understand it better now because I have a pastor that helps me hear it and understand it. We are to be a church that believes the Word of God and follows the Word of God. And I simply want to be the man or the messenger that helps you do that. So again, 1 Peter 3 is what God has brought to us as we're walking through Peter. I'm not the ultimate example of this. Many of you are, are better at marriage and family life than I am. Yet this is the Word of God. And so we're going to come to it. Also, I want to preach today differently than I normally do. I don't know if I have a normal style or not. You would know better than me. But I want to simply walk through this passage today. I want to read it and point out things. I don't want there to be a chance for it to be uh, me get excited about something and start telling stories. I want to stay right here. Also, in your bulletin, I've got the first seven verses. But knowing me and the way I preach, I'll probably go too long, and I'll end up cramming the last verse, verse 7, into the end, shortened. Well, the first six verses are more to do with the woman than they are to do with the man, and the last single verse, verse 7, is to do with the man. So if I do that, guess what will have happened? I will have preached like 80% of the sermon to what women are to be like, and then here at the end, I'll cram in something towards men. And that could be taken the wrong way. I don't want that to happen. So next week, I'm going to preach verse 7, all towards men. Today, I'm going to preach verse 6 verses, all towards women. It's for both of us. It's for all of us. 
As you know, I love young people. I want to spend lots of time with young people. Our church has a growing amount of young people. We need to hear this. We need to hear what God says about what a husband should be like and what a wife should be like. We need that. Sadly, there are just very few pictures of good, strong, godly marriages. I want to ask you, do you you know any? Do you know any married couples that you look at and go, I hope I'm like that? When, when, when I turn 40, when I turn 50, which by the way, 40 is creeping up fast. When I turn 50, when I turn 60, 70, I want to be like them. Do you have any? And I think, honestly, and this is a detriment to the church across the United States of America, here, here might be one of our bigger problems. Marriage is a huge deal. It is the nucleus of the family. The husband and the wife are what raise the children. And we have very few examples. I know you have some. We rejoice at those. But we need to. If there are lots of young people in churches, and we expect those young people to grow up and to be men and women of God, to one day be godly parents, to one day be godly grandparents, they should need some examples to look up to. Either way, the examples or what they will become must be according to the Word of God if it's going to be of any count, if it's going to be any good, if it's going to be true. And so we, we come to the Word of God here And Peter tells us a lot about what we need to know. The most important thing in the world is that Jesus died to bring us to God. Look quickly at verse 18. I'm not preaching on verse 18 today, but I want you to see this. For Christ... Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Folks, the most important thing in the world is that Jesus did something with His holy life, His righteous life, that we might with our unrighteous lives, be brought to God. Jesus is one who carries people to God. This is the most important thing in the world. You see this when you read about Jesus. Yes, He lived, and and yes, He taught, but His living and His teaching were to take a back seat to His dying. He came to die. In John's Gospel, John is very specific about saying Jesus' time had not yet come. 
His time had not yet come. His time had not yet come. His time had not yet come. And throughout the Gospel of John, you have Jesus referring to His time. Which once you read it all, and then you hear Him finally say, My time has come. You see that in Jesus' mind, dying on the cross was the pinnacle. It was the thing that Jesus must come to do. After Jesus had died and been buried and risen from the grave and ascended up to heaven, His followers move forth and they start saying the same thing. Peter would preach that there is salvation in no one else. Jesus died for us. Paul would say, far be it from me that I would boast in anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul would also say, for I desire to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. The heart of Jesus was to die on the cross that He might bring you and I to God. The the message of His messengers is, The only thing I really want to know about you, the biggest priority in my life is that you know Christ crucified for your sins, that you have been brought to God. This is the most important thing. And if you believe that, and if you know that, then God at work in you is restructuring, reorganizing, adjusting your life to cause your life to look like you believe that. Let me say that again. If you believe that Jesus Christ crucified is what brings you to God, and that's the only thing, then God is restructuring, reorganizing, adjusting your life to help you show that. To help you prove that. To help you live that and preach that and tell that. Everything about us. Everything about us. What we treasure. How we react to drama. Our speech. Our loves. Our thrills. What thrills us. Our attitudes. Our work ethics. Are to show I've been brought to God through Jesus' work on the cross. This is what the whole Bible is saying. That Jesus' death on the cross is the most important thing in the world. And if you have come to believe that, and that work of Christ has brought you to God, then God starts to mold your life and adjust things in your life and alter priorities to now you want to live and function in a way that says this is the most important thing in the world. And it starts to slowly change everything. And Peter's explaining this. Remember, he began, Peter, by saying that we're exiles. This isn't our home. We're having to live in a world, in a life, that feels like home, but it's not really our home. 
So you and I have to live here in Fairdale, Kentucky. And we have to have jobs and interact with people and do things and, and, and have relationships and do this and have responsibility and pay bills. and We have to do all of that. But the thing that satisfies us most is our God that is in heaven. And we are waiting till the day that we will get to heaven. We can't wait to get there. There will be no sin there. Nobody will ever hurt or ache or die or cry there. It'll be all good. But we're not there yet. We know we're going to get there through Christ. But we're not there yet. And so we're living here. And while we're living here, remember that's what he said, we're exiles. And we want, while we're living as exiles, to only display the worth and glory of God through Jesus. We want people to see this Jesus brings people to God. The righteous died for the unrighteous, and He is continually taking people to God. And so He's explaining that we, we live in such a way that the treasured Christ looks treasured. That's why, if you look now to chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. See, before Jesus brought you to God, you didn't really have this great concern to abstain from things that were bad from you. Now, if they were going to cause you to lose your job or cause you to, to be unhappy or cause you to um, fail at something, well, then, of course, you get rid of those things. I mean, that's just good society. But once God brings you to Himself through the work of Jesus, no, no, no. We don't like anything bad for us in our lives. Even little private things that y'all don't know about that are affecting my heart I don't want those. These things wage war against our soul. I'm an exile. I want to please heaven. I don't care to please earth. That's what he's saying. So he says this in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The reason why one might... Keep his conduct honorable against people who don't understand him and talk evil about him is because he believes and understands that there is something extremely important that is more important than everything else that Jesus died to bring people to God. That's really all we care about when you compare it to our cares for other things. So from there... Verse 13, he says, be subject to human institutions. Governments, police, speed limits, teachers, principals, things like that. We talked about that. There, he says, be subject to them. He says, God has placed them in their authority. He says, in verse 16, live as people who are free, yet living as servants of God. 
He says in verse 17, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the lifestyle, the humble, submissive, obedient lifestyle of somebody who says, Jesus is my desire. He died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring me to God. I'm not trying to prove me now. I'm not trying to make sure that nobody takes advantage of me. I'm trying to show you how great Jesus is and what He did with my life. From there, He goes on to the home. And the way a servant should be who lives in the home of someone, even if that master is an unfair master. He talks about that. And I preached that last week, talking about three points that life sometimes is just unfair. We still have to be Deal with that the right way. Talked about how Jesus did it, and he gives that example there in verses 21, 22, and 23. And then he says that Jesus is our substitute for us in verses 24 and 25. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That, again, is the most important thing. That's why he keeps saying it. That's why the Bible keeps saying it. That's why the whole Bible is about that. And so whether you are a, a servant in the home of a master, or whether you are living underneath a, a government, or an authoritarian, or a principal, or a cop, or anything like that, you are to be thinking... How do I live in such a way that displays what Jesus has done for me? That displays how I became so close to God. People will know that you're close to God, but we ought to live in such a way that shows how they know we got close to God. We didn't do anything. Christ died for me. I simply have acknowledged that I'm sinful against God and that Jesus died to save sinners. I believe that, I'm trusting that, and that brings me to God. And then from there, he goes on to chapter 3, and he just keeps flowing. Now it's to the marriage. Husbands and wives. Chapter 3 begins with likewise. The reason why he says likewise, wives... It's because he's been talking about this now for a while. He's already talked about the home with servants. He's already talked about human institutions and authority. This is what he's talking about. And what he is talking about is to keep your conduct right because of what God has done for you in Jesus. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. You know, the Bible uses the word submit. Submission is a big word. This is what we're talking about here today. Many people don't like it. Christian people often don't like it. It's very unsettling to think about how many people want to be close to God but don't want to live the way God says. Well, let's try to understand it. I think if we see this passage for what it really is, submission is hardly a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Does everybody see there your own husbands? Nod your head yes if you see that. This means that you don't have to be subject, women, to anybody else's husband. You don't have to be subject to any other women. I mean, to any other men. Be subject to your own husbands. 
This doesn't mean that in the office the men should be in charge over the women. That's not what it means. This means that in the marriage, that the wife is to be subject to her own husband and to that one only. But he'll explain more. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now this is interesting. He's presenting here a picture of a marriage where the woman is a believer in Jesus and the man is not. And what do you do about that? It's a very common situation in the world. There are many homes, many relationships, many marriages out there where one is a believer in Jesus and the other is not. That is a very difficult situation. The, 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 what it means to be a believer is to say all that I've just started this sermon with, Jesus is my treasure. It's the most important thing to me. I want to so live my life that shows Jesus died to bring me to God. The righteous died for the unrighteous. That's what happened in my life. And the other person doesn't see that as what life's all about. He sees it as maybe something else. Life's about family. Life's about being the best person you can be. Life's about being happy. A lot of things. Not necessarily bad things, but other things. He's talking about a situation like that. And he says that you should live in such a way being subject to your husband that you would win them. They would want to be like you. The Bible's going to talk about this a lot. That Christians are to live in such a way among non-Christians that it's appealing to them. I love this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. It says, The glory of the Gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. The glory of the Gospel is when the church is so wildly different from the world that it attracts the world. I would just say that what has gone wrong with many churches is that they have tried to become so cool and so fitting with the lost people around them that they've lost their witness. Nothing different or appealing to a church that's just like the non-church. The way somebody is one to Christ and they become a believer is from them hearing the message. If you're using a pew Bible, it even says there the message. If you're using one of those black pew Bibles. Somebody has to hear the gospel message that God is a great God and that God is creator, that He's holy and He hates sin. And that, that we are sinful people. That we have disobeyed God and left to our own selves. We will not be happy and we will not be uh, right with God forever. And that's a big problem. And yet God in His love sent Jesus to die, to take our place, to, to suffer under God's punishment for us. That's what Jesus has done. He came to bring us to God. That He might bring us to God, like verse 18 says. And then we must be those who believe that. We repent of our sins and say, yes, I believe. Somebody must hear and understand all of that in order for them to ever be saved and brought to God through Christ. If somebody has never heard that message, then they cannot be saved. If you don't know about Jesus and what He's done on the cross, you are not a Christian. You cannot be. You must hear that. And the Bible teaches that without hearing that, nobody can be saved. It literally says that. Faith comes through hearing. And how can they be saved if they've never heard it? This is what's talked about in the book of Romans. But here, it says that the wife 
can live in such a way that she doesn't have to say that message. Now, this doesn't mean that he doesn't have to hear it. It says he's already heard it. Because it says, even if he does not obey the Word, in other words, he's heard the Word. He knows the message. He knows what the wife believes. He knows that she is hoping in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And he, like many men who are just naturally prideful, the way I am, says, I don't need that. I know many men, some of my favorite people in this community are good men making a big difference. And instead of wanting to be Christian like me or you, they think, I'm just as good of a man as you are without it. I don't need it. It's very sad. People are prideful. He thinks, I don't need the message. And here's what he's saying. This husband says, doesn't obey the word. He's not going to repent of his sins and say, Jesus, forgive me. God, forgive me and bring me to you. God, on my own, I'm far from you. He doesn't believe that. He doesn't believe that for or, in order for him to be right with God and brought to God, he needs a Savior. He doesn't believe that in order for him to be right with God and brought to God and on his way to heaven, he must be forgiven. He does not believe that. Listen, folks, you have to believe that to get right with God. There must be a humble heart for you to be a Christian. For you to be a Christian, you must be somebody who says, I need forgiveness. If our marriages are not built on the need for forgiveness all the way around, I need forgiveness in the community, I need forgiveness with my children, like every day, all day. I need forgiveness with my wife, I need forgiveness with my neighbors, I need forgiveness at my job, I need forgiveness. We need forgiveness everywhere. Christian people ought to be those who are regularly living like, I'm sorry, forgive me. Have mercy on me. I don't deserve your goodness to me. And yet this husband does not believe that. He does not obey the Word of God. When it says obey the Word of God, it means come to God through Christ for forgiveness. So he knows the Word, and now he's saying for the wife to live subject in such a way that this man would see her conduct, and without a word even being spoken about religion or church or Jesus, none of that, he would be won over, verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. This is what the Bible teaches. We need to hear this, don't we? We need to hear that when you and your husband don't agree on things, we ought to live in such a pure and respectful way that he sees there's something deeper about you. There's a treasure in your heart that is not stamped out by a husband you don't see eye to eye with. There's a treasure with a deep root in my heart that will not let me quit or give up. Now, that's hard to hear. That's hard to say. Let's see why. I want to skip verses 3 and 4. I'm going to come back to it. We don't skip things. But look at verse 5. He says, for this is how the holy women 
who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. I want to stop right there for a second. I don't know. I started with saying, do you have any marriages that you look up to? Let's split that up and let's say, men, do you have any husbands that you look up to? Do you see any husbands in life that you think, man, I love the way he treats his wife. I love the way he leads his wife. Women, do you have any wives that you look up to? Do you have any wives that, that you look at in their marriage and you think, man, I wish that I was more like her? I love the way she is subject to her husband. I love the way she is with her kids. I love the way, uh, I love the way she, she is a lady. Well, he tells us what we should be looking up to. And he gives the example of Sarah a long time ago, early in the Bible, Genesis chapter 12 through 15. And here's how he describes her. A holy woman who hoped in God. Listen, men, if you want your marriage to get stronger, women, if you want your marriage to get stronger, men or women, husbands and wives, if you want your home to get stronger, if you want your parenting to be better, become a holy man or woman who hopes in God. When your hope becomes God, you will not be devastated or let down or beaten off the path by small disappointments. When your hope is in God, your hope is not in other things. When your hope is in God, it's not in a man. How many teenagers and, and, and college-age students do you know who are in and out of relationships, in and out of sexual relationships, in and out of living together relationships that go nowhere and end up worse, 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 worse? Because we are so desperately looking for something to give me hope, to make me happy, to make me feel special, to make me feel loved, to make me feel pretty, to make me feel not lonely. And it is so far from being the thing that works. You know what conversation I have all the time? All the time here with, with teenagers and college students all the time. They say, well, I don't know if you know, if you know but we broke up. And I say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Listen, let's try going a while without a relationship. Just try. You know why we're so quick to get into relationships? We don't hope in God. And we need to try to find something else that gives me hope or happiness. We won't use the word hope because it sounds too much godly. We, but we use, we, we're, we're looking for something that makes us feel like I'm okay. I'm not weird. I'm not lonely. I'm not ugly. I'm not unlikable. We're looking for something and it doesn't work. It's not just the young people. The statistics on how many marriages don't work tell us this same thing. The most important thing in life is that we come to God through Christ and we learn to hope in God. And when we hope in God, God makes us holy men and women. Our lives are about God. And He is our hope. We could turn to passage after passage that says, though the Rain doesn't come, though the rain pours, though the crops don't grow, though the money doesn't come, though trials come this way and hardship comes this way, and though there's no rejoicing in sight, yet I will trust in the Lord and I will hope in Him. And we learn to put our hope in God. And Peter tells us is this is what is the anchor, what is the core for being somebody who says, I want to have a marriage that is honoring to God. So I will put my hope in God, not in my 
wife. I'll put my hope in God, not in my husband. My hope's in God. Now, if you look at verse 5, it says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Then he gives an example. He says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, in 2015, all of us put the brakes on. We're like, hold up just a second. I ain't ever calling my man Lord. Don't overreact. This was written 2,000 years ago. They talk a little bit differently now. You talk differently now from when I used to talk, when I was in high school. Y'all ever heard the kids say, oh, he's cold, he's cold. What does that mean? Cold's never a good thing. It is now. Doesn't sound like a good thing, but they say it is. Language changes a little bit. All this means is that she subjected herself to him. That's all it means. All it means is that she was a good wife. It doesn't mean anything crazy. To help you see that, it is completely all lowercase letters. Does everybody see that? It's little l, little o, little r, little d. Lord, this has nothing to do with him being God or him being Jesus or him being Savior or him being King. Nothing. It just means she's a good wife to her husband. She is respectful. She is subject. She is pure conduct before him. She is living her conduct in such a way that she doesn't even have to say anything about Jesus to him. He's going to know that Jesus is all up in her life, making her a good wife. If Jesus is really in your heart and you're worried about your marriage, Jesus will make you a better wife. That's exactly what 1 Peter 3 is saying. Now, Hebrews chapter 11, where it gives examples of people who had a real faith in in God, has Sarah in it. It says she had faith. You know what that faith is? That faith is in God. That faith is in the Lord. Sarah is an example to us of one who has her treasure in God. Sarah is an example to us of what it means to be a woman who believes in God and live her life according to God. And if Sarah has her hope in God, then she then is able to be one who has subjected herself. So what I'm saying is, the reason why Peter is able to say Sarah is an example to us is because we know that her hope is not in her husband. Hebrews 11 says her hope is in God. And that's why she's able to be a good wife to this husband that doesn't even believe the most important things about life. Now let's go back up to verse 3. In being subjective to your husband, even though he doesn't obey the word, y'all don't believe the same thing, yet the wife would live in such a way that her conduct is respectful and pure, and he says, you know what? There is a depth to you that is better than the depth to me. An unbelieving husband notices his wife, not because she's preachy. Notice he doesn't say be preachy. He says don't even mention it. There's a depth to her. There's a poise to her. There's a rock-solid foundation to her that's not her husband, and he sees that. Her joy doesn't come from him. It comes from God. Her hope is in God. And he sees that, and he thinks, there is a depth to you that I don't have. And next thing you know, he wants to be like her. 
But we have more description in verse 3 of what she's like. And this is where the Bible gets very practical for us. It says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that you wear. Now, before we become legalists, we go too far with this, he's not saying don't braid your hair, don't wear jewelry, and, and, and don't wear clothes. It's not what he's saying. The Bible's going to never tell us to not wear clothes. All right? So don't say the braiding of hair and the wearing jewelry, the Bible says don't do, because in that category he says don't wear clothes, don't, don't do it with clothes. So he's not talking about not doing it. He's talking about doing it in such a way that this has become what you're about. And this is not confusing to us. All of us know people who are nice looking, who are, who are pleasant, who present themselves well, and they're clearly not wrapped up in it. And all of us know people who are nice looking, and this is what they wear, and this is what they do, and they clearly are wrapped up in it. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about being a person that thinks how I look, how I dress, how I, how I jewelry I wear, braid my hair, the clothing that I wear is, is the most important thing. And we know people that are that way and we know people that aren't that way. He says, don't do that. That's not what holy women who hope in God are concerned about. It's not their biggest concern. Now they're going to take care of themselves. They're going to be nice looking. They're not going to be consumed by it. I remember one time hearing somebody that goes to our church literally cussing mad, saying they didn't have anything to wear. We're too concerned about it at that point. And before you start thinking, who is that sinner? Hey, every one of you have probably thought, I ain't got anything to wear. Closet full. I don't have anything to wear. Don't let it become that important to you. Verse 4. But, let your adorning, and this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. When the Bible gets as simple as saying God thinks that's precious, I want to listen. I need things to be simple. When it says God thinks that precious, I want to listen. I want to say, oh, God thinks that's precious. Okay, I want to be that. And here's what he's saying. Don't be more concerned about adorning the outer than you are with the inner. Some wives listen, are prettier on the outside than they are on the inside and it's destroying their marriage. Some wives are prettier on the outside than they are on their inside and their husbands can't deal with it. Listen. Ladies, it don't take much for us men to think y'all are pretty. In all honesty, men just think women are pretty. God made us that way. Now, you can go out of your way to try to not be pretty, and he's saying don't do that. But there's something attractive about a woman that's not wrapped up in her looks. 
There's something attractive about a woman that says, hey, I hope my outside's pretty, but the soul you're getting on the inside is out of this world. Is hoping in God. And because my hope is in God, I'm so eager to love you. I'm so eager to be subject to you and let you love me. I'm so eager to be your partner and your helpmate. I'm so eager to be your wife, your spouse, your best friend. There's a heart inside of me that is an imperishable beauty and a gentle and quiet spirit. And God thinks that is precious. Remember in Proverbs 31 where it says, charm is deceitful and and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Fearing the Lord is just another way of saying a heart that hopes in God. And then he comes back at verse 5 and says, This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Of course she would have worn jewelry or braided her hair and put on clothes, tried to look her best. That's just normal. And she was concerned about it, I'm sure. I've never met a woman who wasn't somewhat concerned about it. What he's saying is, when Jesus becomes most important to you, when you see Him as the one who died to bring you to God, as your whole understanding of life becomes about God, trying to be the prettiest on the outside isn't important. as trying to be beautiful on the inside. God made us the way we are. We really can't change the outside. But through Christ, we can change the inside. Whether you're beautiful or ugly on the outside, the inside is to be beautiful in Christ as one who hopes in God. Then in the second half of verse 6, he says, now he applies it to us. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, do good just makes sense. He's saying, do this, be subject, be it one who hopes in God. Don't adorn your external, have, have, the, have the beautiful heart on the inside, be one who hopes in God. But then he ends this little section right here with, do not fear anything that is frightening. It's fascinating he says this. What in the world does that mean? What's he talking about? Seems to just change gears quite a bit right there, right? Do you know how much in life is frightening to a woman? Do you know how frightening it is to be alone in life? Either as a single or in a marriage that's not working. Many people feel lonely in marriage. Many people feel lonely under the same roof. It's frightening. There are a lot of things that can come up as frightening to a woman. Peter says, be subject to your own husbands because you have hoped in God. You're a holy woman that hopes in God. And as a holy woman who hopes in God, you are now in position to face a husband that doesn't see eye to eye with you. Or to face anything that's frightening. 
Folks, marriage, husbands and wives, being a husband, being a wife, is about God. And when we don't understand that, we struggle. We just do. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us that marriage, he's, he's having a similar type of talk here, talking about husbands and wives in marriage, and he says that marriage is a picture of Christ to the church. The way Jesus loves the church, which is an unconditional, everlasting, never giving up love, is the way husbands are to love their wives. And the way the church loves to be loved by, the, by Jesus and loves to love Him back is the way wives are to be subject to their husbands. If we don't understand this, we struggle. So if you're a man today that ever hopes to be married, if you're a woman today that ever hopes to be married, if you're here today and you are married, hope in God. Turn to Christ. Realize that the solution is not for them to change. It's for us to hope in God. It's for us to say, God's my treasure. If your marriage is struggling, don't worry about them. You Hope in God that you might be subject. This passage teaches us that there is an unworldly power in one who hopes in God. There is an unworldly power when somebody has their hope in God. And their all-out hope in God starts to transform the relationships. May we be a church and may we be Christians who enter loving relationships based off of our hope in God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for what the Bible teaches us about husbands and wives. God, I ask that You would forgive us of our sins and help us to put our hope in You. May we turn to Jesus. Father, help us to not dismiss 1 Peter 3. Help us to not think, well, I didn't need to hear that. And Help us to not think, well, I'm awful at it. Help us as people of God to say, that's what I needed. That's what my marriage needs. And Father, we ask that you would give us grace and strength in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.